Please rise in body or spirit for our call to worship. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims God's handiwork.
grace and peace to you from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, those, those of us worshiping in the sanctuary, and those worshiping at home. You may be seated. We are delighted to extend our word of welcome, not only on our own behalves, but on behalf of Jesus Christ. And because it is a word of welcome extended on behalf of Jesus Christ, that means there are no qualifying adjectives ever attached to it. All are welcome, and in Christ's name we greet one another. Before we move into the body of our service, I'd like to make a few announcements for our common life together. The first is one simply of, of health. We are still under a mask mandate in Philadelphia, and so we do ask our worshipers to remain masked. Your worship leaders who are speaking will take them off out of deference to those with hearing loss, but only while we are speaking. Uh, as a family of faith, we have joys to share today. I am delighted to report to you the marriage yesterday of Monique Canier to Billy Martin at her mother's home. And we rejoice with Monique and Billy at the start of their married life together. I'd like to invite everyone to a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service, which is just out this door to my right, down the ramp and around the corner onto 21st Street, where you'll find some cookies and lemonade and the opportunity to speak to one another uh, that is prepared by our deacons for our time together. But I will say, if you would like to participate in the Sermon Talkback series, that'll take place at 1215 in the McCall Room. So grab a cookie and come on up. We'll open the windows and have plenty of fresh air in there so that we can talk. I am very pleased that Fraz Thomas will be the chief interrogator for today's sermon as we take on in this five-week series all the things we were told not to talk about in polite society. Uh, so I look forward to sharing that time with you. And finally, if everything works out, I hope you'll mark your calendar for a brunch between the services on September the 26th. Uh, and by everything working out, that means we need simply to be able to make arrangements to use Chancellor Street so that we can uh, we can safely be outdoors in the fresh air and enjoy one another's company at a, a welcome back brunch. So we'll keep you posted on that, but do mark your calendar to do something on that day here at the church between the services. With all of these things noted, let us continue to worship God with the confession of sin. The proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ even prays for us. With such assurance, we need not fear confession, but simply draw to our Maker in candor, first together and then in silence. Holy God, you call us to lives that are engaged with the world around us. From the earliest pages of scripture, we know that your intention is that your people should be a blessing to the world. And yet, we live in a world that so often reflects brokenness. It is tempting to try and hide from the problems of our communities. Politics make us cynical, and we are tempted to believe that the distances between us are too great to be bridged. We place our trust in leaders rather than accept that you have called us to take individual responsibility for the common good. Forgive us, we pray. Remind us that you have called us by name and made us for a blessing. Through Christ our Lord, we offer all our prayers.
saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ died to save sinners. Believe in the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
first lesson comes from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Find them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. second lesson is taken from the 29th chapter of Jeremiah, the first verse through the seventh. Continue to listen to the word of God. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken from exile from, to, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It said... Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen.
Machiavelli was wrong. I am acutely aware that I cannot cover everything the church needs to say about the politics of our day in a 20-minute sermon, so let me repeat that because it's the core of the message. Machiavelli was wrong. The ends do not justify the means. Mind you, no rule is absolute, but we have politicked ourselves as a country into some pretty shaky territory when it comes to our common life together, and the attitude that the ends can justify the means by which some goals are achieved seems to have been a significant culprit in getting us to the fix we're in. So we need to think about how to build an ethical framework that allows us to live faithfully as we navigate the issues of life. For these five weeks, we will encounter each week some form of the Shema, the central creed of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. When Jesus recites it in the New Testament, it forms the heart of the great commandment. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our strength, with all our soul. And Jesus adds, with all our minds. Jesus wants us to think about faith. And when Jesus was asked what was the heart of the law, the heart of Jewish practice, the heart of what his followers should practice, that's what he said adding the second commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. So that seems to me like a pretty good basis for a framework to think theologically about life. And this is not an original idea. Thomas Aquinas and the other magisterial theologians developed this notion far more fully in their sweeping treatises. But for our purposes, it is enough to get us started. Today we consider what this commandment means for us with regard to politics. Now I suspect many Christians are leery of talking about politics in the context of faith and with good reason. Opinions are tightly held. Friendships can become frayed by attempting to persuade others of the wrongness of their viewpoints. You may have heard Tony Campolo's famous analogy about politics and faith, that it's something akin to mixing manure and ice cream. It doesn't much affect the manure, but it does very little to improve the ice cream. But we need to. We need to because we live in a world where politics are unavoidable, and there are two chief dangers about which we should be on guard when it comes to engaging our politics from the vantage point of faith. The first is the sin of cynicism, and the second is the sin of apathy. 
Let's start with cynicism, and I am reminded of H.L. Mencken's assessment of politics. No one in this world has ever lost money by underestimating the intelligence of the great masses of the plain people, nor has anyone ever lost public office thereby. How's that for cynicism? And yet sometimes we do act like that's true in how we relate to others. There is a pervasive sense for many that our political system is somehow full of deceit and backdealing, at least by the politicians on the other side. We're conditioned and reinforced in seeing our politician as good and the other side as bad. But that's a bit simplistic, don't you think? And yet we seem addicted as a culture to encountering our politics in this way. Even though our friends, our families, our fellow members of this congregation may very well be on that other side. We are not a homogenous congregation any more than we are a, a homogenous nation. And because there is a back and forth that seems to seesaw the country this way and that, it's easy to assume that nothing good can come out of politics, or at least nothing of lasting good. But God demands that we engage with the world. And some of the problems of the world have political solutions. But let's start with some honesty about some of the baggage the church is carrying from our past efforts to engage the political sphere, because that's probably the source of some of our cynicism. Christians have sought to pursue our religious goals in public life, and let's be honest, we've gotten some pretty bad results through the years. Faith was appealed to as a basis for the anti-miscegenation laws that forbade the marrying of black people and white people in the South. Faith was appealed to as a basis for Prop 8 in California and Amendment 1 in North Carolina that sought to outlaw the marriages of same-gender couples. Faith has been appealed to on, as a basis for bathroom bills and on and on. And when laws are passed in the name of faith that cause harm, it should leave little wonder that the church struggles a bit with our reputation. And we all remember what a colossally bad idea prohibition turned out to be. But here's the rub. The Women's Christian, the women's Christian Temperance Union, sorry, which led to prohibition, also did something that needed doing. They highlighted the damage that rampant alcoholism was doing to the family and to individuals in an era when excessive alcohol consumption was considered to define what it meant to be free, particularly as it related to masculinity. And in that, they succeeded because they changed the nature of the discourse. Because no matter how worthy the cause, no matter how noble the ends, 
when the church seeks to manipulate the political sphere to legislate morality rather than seeking to change the hearts and minds of people, we are on very shaky ground. Not only because using majority rule to control minority populations is, is it's, it's frankly ethically problematic, uh, but because if there's one thing we know about modern politics, we're pretty evenly split. And it's easy to forget that one may not always be in the majority. It's also easy to forget the majority is not always right. But even more important than that is this. We must be very cautious about attempting to draft God's support for our causes. The third commandment, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, is about using God's name to justify our own goals. Now, I know many of us were taught that it's about cussing, and a case can certainly be made for that. But that case is secondary to the purposes for this commandment, not primary. So we must approach politics with great humility about what God says and great honesty about what we say. Because the minute we claim to speak for God in pursuit of our own goals, we are on very shaky theological ground. Thin ice, theologically. But neither may we simply turn aside. Neither may we indulge in the sin of apathy. In the Minor Prophets, we will readily find much of God's disfavor displayed for the belief that what we do doesn't matter to God, that nations can ignore with impunity the needs of people in their midst to the benefit of others. Constructing a faith system wherein persons of faith are not responsible for the conduct of our common life together requires us to slash at our own holy text because the Bible is full of the expectation that we will work to live in good and harmonious communities. Indeed, the whole law, that's the first five books of the Bible, the whole law seems to be founded on the conviction that this is a good thing. The great reformer John Calvin noted that the Decalogue, that's just the Ten Commandments, could be divided into the first table of the law and the second table of the law, with the first table of the law, or the first few commandments, being oriented toward how we relate to God, and the second table of the law being oriented to how we relate to each other. The foundation of our faith assumes a commitment and an expectation to work for good community. Faith demands that we shelve our cynicism and put aside our apathy and engage. Now, I must confess with a certain amount of humility, there is sufficient diversity in the biblical witness as to how persons of faith relate to government that I am not sure I can give a one-size-fits-all ethical framework for engaging politics from a vantage point of faith or even, frankly, that we should. 
But what I think we can do and we must do is establish some parameters for doing so. And, and pardon me for simplicity on this one, but we need to remember what Mr. Rogers taught us about living in community. Be kind to one another and respect one another. Now, how often do we encounter vilifying, disrespectful remarks directed at persons running for or serving in public office? Refusing to participate in a media culture that rewards rhetorical skewering to the detriment of facts is a great first step. Now, this second one is my own bias, I will confess that, but moving away from treating politics as a game and as entertainment is a great second step. Because God is not pleased when we mock, malign, or in any way run down any person for any reason at any time. No part of that behavior is pleasing to God. Which is not to say that persons of faith must live uncritically. We are certainly expected to use our brains and be thoughtful. But God does expect that we will behave like Christians while we are doing it. And while we're thinking critically about politics, we must never be uncritical of ourselves. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees about seeing the speck in someone else's eye and missing the log in our own. That teaching very much applies. Finally, when thinking critically about others and ourselves, we do well remember that judgment ultimately belongs to God, who does not tolerate rivals for the claim. Persons of faith will vote in many ways because we perceive different solutions to the problems that face the world. And the perceived wrongness of one's political thought does not mean that they necessarily have less faith or less conviction. And it's a comfort in that moment to remember that God always is ultimately in charge of this world. In the years when your candidate loses, I hope that will be a comfort. Now that's enough of what not to do, because God does not ever want us to become so concerned about getting it wrong that we do nothing. Which brings us to what to do. And I love that passage of Jeremiah that we read today. I particularly love the admonition to seek the welfare of the city where we are. In Hebrew, it reads shalom. We are to seek the shalom of the city where God has placed us. And shalom is well-being that is so pervasive that everyone experiences it. God calls us to work for the shalom of our city. And in this instance, city just means the community. 
and it can be as large or as small as the political entity needs to be, as long as shalom extends to the whole community. If anyone is left out of God's shalom, there is more work to do. God commands the people to seek the shalom of their community. And what's so striking to me about this is that it is the community in which the Israelites are exiled. They weren't the dominant voice. They weren't even a respected voice, per se. And yet God counsels them to seek the well-being of their community. And in that lies a word from the Lord for today. Regardless of what a Christian believes about the role of government or present or future incumbents of high office, the calling remains to seek the good, to seek what is better, and to work diligently for, toward that shalom for which God has created us. At the end of the day, no matter how passionately we feel about a candidate or a party or a popular movement, no matter how disappointed we are when we lose or how jubilant we are when we win, God still calls us to be community and to commit ourselves to that shalom every day, over and over again, even, especially, when we are in exile. The Apostle Paul puts it slightly differently in 2 Corinthians when he reminds us that we are called to be agents of reconciliation because the world needs some reconciliation. And when it comes to the work of reconciliation, perhaps I can back down from my original statement. Perhaps in that cause, the ends could justify the means. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Let us affirm our faith together with the ancient baptismal creed of the Church. What do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Remembering that all we have and all that we are is a gift from God, let us return to God the gifts of what we have taken from God's abundance and the prayers of our hearts with our morning offering. You may place your offerings in the plate on the table following the postlude.
Let us pray. God of grace and God of glory, we are gathered as your people, and we are pledged to do your work. You have made us for a blessing. You have given us so much, and we return a portion of what we have received, asking only that you would bless it and use it, that we ourselves might be blessed as we see your kingdom at work among us. Uphold us, we pray, as we seek to be faithful disciples, dispensing the vocation to which we are called. In the service of your church, as a light to the nations, as a city built on a hill, as the salt of the earth, that you intend to bless the earth, we gather in prayer, we offer our prayers, guide our words, that they may guide our hearts, and in guiding our hearts, guide our feet, that we might indeed be your body in this world. We pray this morning for the people of the whole world, where we know people and places where we know no one. We pray for your mercy alike. For regions still torn by war, we pray for your enduring peace. Where poverty oppresses people with hopelessness, we pray a sufficiency. Where we may help to be that sufficiency, lead us. We pray this morning for our own nation as we are reminded again of the tragic loss of life and dreams and hopes experienced by this nation two decades ago, we pray your hand of blessing, comfort, and grace on all who were left bereaved by the attacks on September 11th, where your healing still needs to come. We pray for your presence and your mercy. We give thanks for the bravery of the first responders then and now, and continue to pray for those on the front lines battling the COVID-19 pandemic. We pray for safety, fortitude, peace of mind, and wholeness of body. We pray for the people of our own community. We pray for those who mourn, we pray for all who suffer. We pray for those who are victims of gun violence and other forms of violence. We pray for those whose minds are disquieted by mental and emotional illness. We pray for those whose homes are not up to standard. We pray for those who worry where their next meal will come from. We pray for those with no homes. You call us, O oh God, to seek the shalom of our city. So we pray that your pervasive well-being would descend, that we might be agents of that reconciliation. To that end, we pray for this church, for this expression of the body of Christ. May we all seek to live discipled lives 
teaching, learning, serving, praying, always bearing the death of Christ in our bodies so that the life of Christ may be made known. For it is in his name that we pray and that we offer our prayers, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
that it may have sounded like what I was saying was just be decent people. That is a great first step. It's a great first step on the way to being lost in wonder, love, and praise. And that is where we're all bound. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.